0: If you're ever in a point of success, if you ever have a little win, a big win, any kind of win, celebrate. Be in that moment. But most importantly, never forget to do this. Look back on everything that you did to reach that success and figure out what was the one thing that you did that if you didn't do, the success wouldn't happen.
1: Thank you everybody for joining this episode of the Founder Vision podcast. I'm here with Elise Peterson. She's the founder and CEO of TLIT, TLit.com. How are you doing today, Elise?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on today. I'm looking forward to our chat.
1: Yeah, me too. So tell me a little bit about what you guys are doing over there.
0: Um yeah, so I am the founder of TLET. We started in 2012. We are a B2B marketplace that facilitates. Trade between independent tea growers and tea business buyers. So think Alibaba in the sense of business model. Uh, we we are doing wholesale bulk importing and exporting uh, for the supply chain of the Camellia sinensis crop. So Camellia sinensis is one plant that all teas come from, and we're talking about artisanal teas. Uh, these tend to be handmade teas, uh, have uh, an artisanal value in the market, not just in the Chinese market, but uh, most excitingly, the U.S. market has really grown. Um, and you may have seen it yourself in the past decade, even at your local coffee shops or seeing tea houses open in your local community mm-hmm. of doing this, you know, kind of like artful service of tea. It's called gung Fu Cha. It's the same words as Kung Fu. Same same meaning. Mm. Uh, it translates to do with great skill, but it's a really great word because it's more than just the skill that you get from experience. There's no certification. There's no ceremony. Um, in fact, if you ever hear someone say that they are a tea master of Kung Fu Cha or they're practicing a tea ceremony, uh, more than likely, unless they've dedicated their entire life to it, it is cultural appropriation and it is problematic. And you know, part of the work that we're doing at TeaLit is decolonizing a lot of these, these systems that, uh, you know, our idea that we have around a lot of products, not just tea, uh, but tea is a great product because it's almost like the first one. It's like the very first one, 5,000 years of human history of having a relationship with this Camellia Sinensis plant. And uh, as the world did colonize back in the 19th century, um, tea was the main crop, the main product that represented a lot of that, um, colonization. Uh, even the Opium Wars, which is a really hot, uh, piece of history from, from Chinese, you know, British, uh, conflict, uh, opium wars were actually about tea. They were about tea and the trade of tea. And um, so, you know, we don't really think about these things that uh, what's behind the products. And, you know, through my work of traveling the world, I was first a food scientist, then became a Peace Corps volunteer working with rural farmers. I've come to learn that there are a lot of products that are decolonized. They are real coming from families and the soil and having that lineage to those things. Uh, but uh, the market, the commodity market is not very favorable to those types of products. Mm. And it's simply an issue of education. You know, and so that's what we do. In addition, you know, we got a, a big task here. Uh, I did not start this business with a mature, flourishing market, um, like coffee or cacao, perhaps. Those are much more mature wine. Those are artisanal ag products that, are more mature uh, in the U.S. market. Uh, So we, for the past decade since I started this company, have really been doing a lot of the seed work of educating the market about tea, about appreciating artisanal products. And this is something that will translate into all types of agricultural commodities. Herbs, coffee, cacao, spices. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually I do want to evolve this to an Alibaba for the food industry, powered by blockchain, supporting transparency and, 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 and equity to, to all the stakeholders involved and in ultimately decolonizing, um, our, our world, which is what mm-hmm. much needed.
1: I'm curious uh, to, to scroll back to to that piece on decolonizing and also around the Kung Fu Cha. So my my understanding of what you were describing earlier on was, you know, like you, you said, have, I've imagined you've gone to some tea houses and you've seen them be kind of delivering tea. That's called Gung Fu Cha. So is it is that a general term for like the service of excellence in serving tea? I do know that there's a... So- a specific practice that uh, I believe this might be what you're referring to that is like a very traditional like you spend your entire life doing it, and there's this exact sequence and it's the yeah you know, that's a ceremony. ceremony, yeah,
0: yeah, that's a ceremony, and there exist ceremonies in Japan and Korea, uh several different communities within China, different Buddhist communities, Taoist communities. Uh, and even here in the states, you know, I could create a ceremony, and if I attach value to all those steps, and I create that culture, mm-hmm. and I uh, introduce this to followers who then practice it, then it would become a ceremony. But the over the overarching practice of brewing a cup of tea and providing hospitality to your guests uh, is is simply Kung Fu cha. It is cultural. It does possess reverence, but it's not a ceremony. And when you, Mm. when you do start to assume things like that, uh, it does become appropriating. And, uh, it, it's been a part of my work's vocabulary and discourse for the past five or so years. I mean, obviously. Cultural appropriation and colonization has been going on for hundreds of years, but we're in a really valuable time right now where people are voicing their opinions. And unfortunately, a lot of those opinions are being voiced by gatekeepers, uh, myself included, right? Like, I am not Chinese. I am not Asian. These are not my inherent cultures. I am only an ambassador. For these things, and, and the best thing that I can do is elevate the voices of, of people. And for the longest time, uh, marginalized communities, uh, for one reason or another, you know, and I won't talk about that right now because that's a whole other topic, but for one reason or another, did not have amplified voices. Um, and, and now's the time with technology, with things like TikTok, I think TikTok is a really incredible platform that is elevating a lot of these voices, indigenous voices, uh, voices from all over the world, bringing this viewpoint in of, no, I did not consent to you stealing my culture and calling it something else. And then the worst part, financially benefiting off of it. And so I work in commerce you know, my customers are farmers and then there are like business owners and these business owners ultimately are those gatekeepers and they have all types of cultural backgrounds themselves that are valid and beautiful, uh, but they're different than the, the, these products that we're introducing. So. We as ambassadors of these products as ambassadors of these cultures really have to be careful in how we educate um, and the new term now I have a, um, a colleague up here in London she is from China. She's from Guizhou, uh, which has a rich history of tea growing and of colonization of their tea. Um, as she has coined the term facilitator, you know, instead of uh, seeing the relationship of education and of evolution and of cultural growth between teacher and students, you know, which which often is a one-sided relationship where the information comes from the teacher and the student just absorbs it and th- that cycle continues, uh, changing that entire narrative to, facilitating. So seeking out those facilitators. So I would be one of those facilitators. And that brings on a great burden and a great responsibility. I shouldn't use the word burden because I'm grateful and it's awesome. It's great work. It just requires work. You have to invest more into listening more, hearing more, learning more, and trying the best that you can to redistribute that information as unadulterated as possible. And again, technology, blockchain, all these things have been like incredible resources uh, to make it very easy. So now I do live streaming, even with TikTok, the way that social network content is being shared. Now there's a lot of Uh, you know, stitching and duetting and just kind of piggybacking on other people's content and voices that does allow you to introduce those perspectives to your audiences that you you have, your followers that you influence over. Instead of those words having to come directly from my mouth, they can come from, you know, the source themselves, which is, you know, a big part of this decolonization movement.
1: Okay. So I'm still curious something here. So you were saying early on that when, you know, people have noticed, re- probably noticed recently that they can go to a place and they can have tea as a service. Um, and I was going to say that I've really been appreciating the fact that I can go to go to something that's like a coffee shop, but where I'm drinking non-caffeinated beverages and with an, an atmosphere that's not having really loud, you know, steamers uh-huh. every 30 seconds <laughs> and, you know, laptops, just having, having sort of a, a, a different kind of I don't want to use the word culture in the terms of like a kind of national culture or uh, like human culture, but more just like the the kind of energy in a space. Um, and so I'm I'm curious somewhere somewhere from the source between the source of where tea and its traditions came from, and reaching you know the, the tea center in San Francisco and the hate somewhere there's a detachment is that what you're yep. referring to as cultural appropriation?
0: Yes, there's a detachment and consumerism commodification has really played a big role in widening that disconnection.
1: Okay. And what's the what's the problem with that disconnection?
0: was the problem. Uh, information gets swept under the rug. Oppression gets swept under the rug. Um, you know, so some information I could share with you just, just, just a a stat that could just kind of give you a glaring idea of this. Uh, in the state of Assam in India, which is the largest tea producing area of India, perhaps of the world, a very concentrated place with a lot of tea growing, um, there are hundreds and hundreds of tea estates that each consist of hundreds, if not thousands of acres and thousands of workers. Mm-hmm. Um, every year, there are three girls kidnapped or missing at each estate in this mm. state of, of Assam. So this is thousands of girls and exclusively all being funneled into the, the human network or the human trafficking networks in India. Um, and so, you know, like that is a hot topic that mm-hmm. people care about. They want to know about, they want to know what's going on. It's like, there are thousands of of women, of young girls that are funneled into that system mostly because of the poor living conditions uh, right. the you know the poor opportunities that these young girls experience living and working on these tea estates you so know thing and that that you're pointing ends
1: up- to you there yeah so the thing that you're pointing to there then is the um, the economic model uh, somewhere somewhere between the source and my enjoying the tea in a tea lounge in San Francisco there's some disconnect between the values that I would want. To be purchasing his uh-huh. tea with and the uh-huh. values that are actually existing further down the supply chain uh, yep. which is you know i think that's a issue across across the supply chain we have the problem with yep. ipads and i don't know that there's a culture that owns um, except for maybe like western culture culturally owns the concept of a piece of like electronic technology but there is a, there is a real point uh, a real issue and I think that that's only one of the issues that you're kind of pointing mm-hmm. to here. It's,
0: yeah, there's so many. It's 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 a lot. It's a lot, and and the fact is that information just gets swept under the rug, including with things like fair trade. Yeah. So fair fair trade international is a for profit organization, just like my organization, and how they operate is that uh, they they charge the farm an annual fee to inspect them. And they also charge a fee to inspect all of the other members of the supply chain. So the retailer and the retail brand that's manufacturing it here and then the source, the farm. And uh, when they are doing these audits, they are only holding the farms accountable for the local labor laws. In West Bengal, India, where Darjeeling comes from, and that's like the highest valued tea coming out of India, the minimum wage is I believe like 160 rupees a day, which is like three bucks, a little over three bucks a day um, for grueling hard labor. But as long as that tea factory or that tea farm pays the fee and they pay that minimum wage, they have fair trade on the label. And I have heard quotes at about $30,000 a year for these farms to hire the audit to to come in.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. that's definitely a, a challenge. It's how do you how do you bring in oversight and transparency in a way that doesn't create its own new distortions, and is also actually effective and not easily worked around.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know that solution.
1: Well, it sounds like you have some ideas. You're you're <laughs> you've, you've mentioned bringing blockchain into this, and you've uh, you know moved from Hawaii to back to the mainland to be closer to distribution or something. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, what is What are some of the ways that your business and the way that you are operating is intending to solve some of these kind of wicked problems?
0: Yeah. So ultimately, I don't know the solution. Yeah, I have lots of ideas. Yes, I've been doing this for a decade and I've got a lot of passion about it and we could talk all afternoon but that's not going to make a difference what will make a difference and the only thing i do believe in is first and foremost humility and that was a piece of advice that i got when i was very young and it's such a shame that i don't remember who told me that advice because it's the only piece of (laughs) advice that i still continue to think about And share with other entrepreneurs and young leaders and people is that if you're ever in a point of success, if you ever have a little win, a big win, any kind of win, and you just feel like I'm in a point of success, celebrate. Be in that moment. But most importantly, never forget to do this. Look back on everything that you did to reach that success and figure out what was the one thing that you did that if you didn't do the success wouldn't happen and Mm. make sure to continue that thing. And for me, when I've done that continuously going through the cycles of, of reflection, humility, is it every single Mm. time? So like I'm almost 40 now I'm, you know, middle age, so I can, you know, be pretty confident in my life lessons. (laughs) (laughs) I'm holding strong to that. I'm not jaded on that one. That one's cute. That, that one's huge. But, um, the other important thing I think is, is, the same thing that I said about the decolonization, bringing the voices from the source as unadulterated as possible and making sure that they have a place at the table to share that voice. And so you think about it in the terms of my business model, I'm a platform, I'm an operating system for this industry to operate. And we're talking about 1000s of small businesses, you know, so like, the business that I operate, the the operations, the the things that actually happen because of my platform's existence, uh, including production of tea, distribution of tea, logistics, the the retailing and the marketing of tea, the service of tea, all of that stuff conventionally in a corporate sense, which I am operating a corporation, would be like the Starbucks model where you owned all of those pieces and everything is centralized into one business owning all of those pieces. Mm -hmm. When that happens, that's when information can be swept under the rug. You know, you can mold the narrative how you want it to be. And the voices of all of the stakeholders we're talking about the farmers we're talking Mm. about the water molecules and the soil like those like i'm thinking on that level all of those elements have a voice at the table and so in this new business model that i am practicing here it's something i call distributed entrepreneurship which involves thousands of small businesses performing the same tasks, the same operation that that conventional centralized organization like a Starbucks would, instead right. of one organization doing it, it's thousands. And each of those thousands of organizations have a voice at the mm. table. Um, and that's my only goal. So I just build my products to support
1: that. That's interesting. So i I agree with you that ultimately when you have when you have a distributed system where more of the voices are included, you end up having the possibility for a more inclusive and a more integrated information processing system so that, you know, people are able to access the best tea and know for real that it is the best tea and know for real that it was ethically produced and that it was you know, there was no extortion involved and there's nothing being hidden from them. And also if you have a distributed system, you start to run into some of the issues of efficiency that these consolidated monolithic models have been able to outcompete in the past. And so I'm curious, and because this kind of brings back to the sort of the blockchain question of whether even that technology works at this stage yet or if it's ready. But the concept is still just really exciting to me that you could create a system. That includes all of the voices and the data can be uncorrupted all the way through to a buyer, even though it went through a single party at some point who could have cleaned it for their advantage. Uh-huh. So I'm curious what how, how you are approaching that balance between the efficiency of a system and including the voices and having the opportunity for dissonance and inefficiency from that.
0: Yeah. So yes, there is definitely an opportunity for blockchain to support those trust-based transactions. So mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's it. Like When it comes to like which business models are going to be best for blockchain to use, the only filter that you should ask first and foremost before you take any steps further is, is there a trust-based transaction happening here? In most cases, no. In most mm-hmm. cases, no. Um, But in the case of, of what we're doing, there could be there certainly is vetted information and we provide that already. Right. So and I've been doing that for the past decade using a very simple conventional spreadsheet you know database mm-hmm. is very simple uh, no hosting costs you know like it's just right. been something that we've been able to 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 manage manually and yes at the end of the day um you know i am the the vetting agent for this information which is not the most ideal but for where we are that's mm-hmm. what it's going to be, but there is opportunity going forward. But the big challenge with this kind of verification or authentication is with food products, especially. But I, I'm sure it applies to all types of products. Is that you? There's no like marking the product itself um, because you could have it on the package, but then. You know, and it's been happening in tea in, in Chinese tea market, there's a segment of the market like aged teas, puer mm-hmm. tea. Uh, that's like the darker and it, it's usually pressed into a cake. Actually, fun little fact that type of tea used to be pressed into little coins. And when the, uh, the tea horse road that was formed between China and Tibet, which is one of our first international trade routes, uh, they used those little tea coins, uh, to, uh, value the trades that happened along the route. So officially, tea is humans' first international uh, currency. Wow. But anyway. Uh, wow yeah thank you for that i like i always use that to validate like why the heck is like a tea company at the forefront of blockchain it's like because of things like that you know it's been at
1: the forefront of (laughs) i mean forefront of uh capital as you just described forefront of currency it's been at the forefront of globalization and colonialism you know the east india tea company it's basically been at the front of everything and yeah okay i want to i want to hear you continue (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah. So the challenge of tea being able to swap it out, because it's been happening in China, the aged teas at high power value, the merchants will, they'll even go as far as to like rough up the packaging on the roadside outside Mm -hmm. to make it look aged and just put the, the different marketing text on it to say, oh, this comes from this famous mountain and it aged this way and it's worth this much. Um, a lot of that is lies. Like, it is just like infiltrated with, uh, corruption and with counterfeit products. The same thing can happen with blockchain. They say, okay, well, we'll just put a QR code on the packaging of the cake. It's like, well, duh, the same thing can happen. Right. Um, uh, but there is some, uh, so my background, I'm actually a food scientist. So this is actually one of those little areas Ooh, where I get to like merge my food science background with, uh, with blockchain. Um, there is a way to like, have a marker on food and the food industry has been doing it for decades now but the technology behind it is very expensive it's a gas chromatography mass spectrometry so it's essentially where you uh, it's a machine that will absorb all the different volatile compounds from the product you may know this term as terpenes you just take all the terpenes from it Mm -hmm. and then uh, those will um, evaporate at different temperatures like we're talking about minuscule micro Differences in temperature, and when those compounds are extracted, then they are shot with a um, uh, with an electron, and it creates a unique distribution when it gets. It,
1: Right, it creates the spectrum of colors, and you can analyze and compare those spectrums of colors to a library of known.
0: Yeah. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. That's not easy technology. It's not cheap, easy technology. But when that technology does get cheap, cheap and easy, which is going to be the future, um, then yeah, we could easily just send the sample through, and that reading could be the authentication that we use to like validate. Okay, Mm -hmm. this is coming from this part of the ledger. We can validate that this product is this. Like right now, it's on average three to four hundred dollars a sample to be doing assays like that. So if yeah. you're, you know, just a consumer shopping at the grocery store, like you're not going to have that kind of power uh, to authenticate your products like that. But we will get to that point. And well, I've
1: heard, I've heard of a more recently produced technology that allows somebody to basically mark, mark a, a food product with something that ends up being a unique kind of token, a unique uh, token is sort of the wrong word because that that word is too adjacent to the blockchain space. But (laughs) like it is a, there's a unique signature that is easily readable. And I don't know what the cost of it is, but I know the cost is going to be a lot less than having to run something through a mass spec and make sure that it's coming from the same source. And then also have to figure out how to reduce noise on how is it slightly different from one part of the, you know, the garden to another. Yeah. Um, And I think it would be really interesting to combine those two technologies where you can recognize that this producer signatured their, signed their produce in a certain way. And then anywhere it goes in the system, you could then verify that it actually came from that producer while you then use something like blockchain to verify something like that the entire supply chain had the appropriate temperature throughout, you know, using Uh a pressure sensor. Then you can verify where that was attached.
0: Yep. It's exciting stuff.
1: <laughs> but now I'm curious then, since since all this stuff is still sort of in the, uh, the hypothetical kind of just now coming together space, what is it? So you you were talking about you've been running this on Excel spreadsheets and essentially being the gatekeeper and people need to trust you to keep that gate. And, you know, the the conventional wisdom is that as you grow and become more of a monolithic entity that people will trust you less to, yep. to stick by that that moral. Uh-huh. So what is, what is your strategy right now going from where we exist in technology and bringing these principles into business with where we're at now and what we have technology-wise yep. and be able to be in a position to be integrating these new technologies in the ways that are theorized? Yeah.
0: I mean, ultimately, yeah, uh, furthering my, myself away from being that gatekeeper – that spreadsheet uh is is the goal um i i don't know like authenticating a product and its supply chain alone is going to be enough of a financial opportunity to support Mm. all the tech and all the things that are going to need to be involved to to make that a reality right now but where i do see it uh an opportunity that could stimulate this to happen is microfinance um You know, so basically, essentially decentralizing the commercial bank, uh, to, to be the supply chain to support it from the consumer to the business buyer. But essentially, um, farmers can, can essentially tokenize their future crops, uh, essentially like launch an ICO for a future crop. Um, and, and, and we're talking thousands of them, like an infinite mm-hmm. amount. And that's the future of cryptocurrencies, that there's going to be an infinite amount of, of currencies that all represent different values and different trust, trust-based trust transactions. But um, that farmer can launch their ICO similar to any other ICO that you your friends or, or you've seen on the news um, where you know, there's this this future value, and it's a it's, it's a true utility token where the future value of the token is associated with the future value of that tea. Before the tea has been planted or before it's been harvested, the value is much lower, right? And so the, mm. once it gets harvested, so then, you know, right now, if a farmer goes to get a loan in the places that I work, and this includes Kiva loans, other microfinance loans that we interpret to be very like beneficial and humanitarian the average interest rate on these loans is 20% and that's simply like business sense and that's because these are high risk loans right these are loans going to small scale farmers that don't have business acumen don't have marketing abilities and so you know the the banks the lenders have to to bake in these high interest rates to support this business model mm. but with a network that I've been operating for a decade, I have strong sales history for and essentially can collateralize all of this microfinance with the farmers past history on our network Um, and, and actually have the buyers themselves participate in this microfinance. And so then the farmers can pay back their loans not only with cash, you know, uh, principal plus interest, but also can pay back the loan with product itself, right? Which, you know, mm. my ideal would be, like, if we could eliminate the the need for some type of monetary value exchange and things like that, like, bartering, like, really get us to, like, a very, very, like precise like micro localized distributed method of a bartering in a mm-hmm. like corporate sense oh I would just that that yeah. that would be my dream country if I could see that yeah. happen yeah so. I mean, it,
1: it sounds great to be able to have to be able to have micro investment in thousands of different different small producers you might make one investment that is distributed between 500 of them across uh-huh. a couple of different regions uh-huh. with need and potential. And you end up with these tokens that over the course of time, as the tea comes to production, they, the value of those tokens is A, liquid all the time. And then B, slowly approaches the eventual value of the finally produced tea until eventually it's paid out when the tea is sold into uh-huh. perhaps the wholesale market. This reminds me of something that I heard about in Italy, where there is still a bank that takes deposits for bi- or collateral for business loans as wheels of cheese They will take (laughs) there are warehouses, there's a a massive warehouse, uh, climate controlled, where they take as collateral wheels of uh, Parmesan and Reggiano or whatever, and they age there. So they're increasing in value as collateral for small business loans for cheesemakers. And then when they produce more cheese, they get their old cheese back and then it's actually worth more. And they've actually made interest on the collateral that they let the bank hold. And I don't know what the bank gets out of this. Maybe they get a cut at that. But uh, it's interesting that this is a model that actually has existed before. But one of the things that requires is a level of trust and institutional interest in the small guys and creativity to fit a model to, you know, the the ground floor to yeah. not try to, you know, fit, fit an entire market into a particular abstracted financial model, but be like, Hey, there's other kinds of resources and other ways to invest and vest Sounds like a perfect
0: opportunity for, for, uh, for crypto.
1: Sounds perfect. (laughs) (laughs) But they've been doing it without crypto. You know, it's, it's interesting to see what, 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 what opportunities have we been missing all along that crypto is going to open up and wasn't even necessary for.
0: Yep, exactly. So yeah, in the process of, of, of tokenizing these future crops, then that token will be associated with that product forever. Right. And so then you can bake in all of that supply chain authentication, which right now, yeah, there would be no institutional need for it. Just like I don't have an institutional need for using blockchain to manage the data that I have. Right. I don't need that. But, like, for microfinance, if I could go to the farmers and be like, hey, we're going to use your sales data for the past five years to offer you a potential loan, and we'll even market your loan to your potential lenders, which are going to be your future buyers, the consumers that that I'm connected with through our you know, social media marketing and, and live streaming. I just, I think that would be incredible. And I, I, that's how I would see this becoming a feasible thing happening realistically within the next, you know, five years. Hmm.
1: So we're, we're getting close to the end of our time here. And I have a question for you and I'd love to end these on sort of a personal question or existential even. And, and I'm curious to hear from you one, uh, how, how you feel, you said humility is something that you learned early on that is very important in in business and in life. And I'm curious how you separate or combine or work with having both humility and confidence in a way that serves both.
0: Yeah. So I don't know if, um, if, if, if humility and confidence are mutually exclusive of each other. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what I'm going to challenge there. Um, you know, I wasn't making that
1: assumption. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: so I don't think that they have to be separate of each other. I think that they, they can work at the same time. Um, but you know, once arrogance comes in, so arrogance is like unwarranted confidence, Mm. um, ego
1: compensated lack of confidence. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That
0: then those things can't can't exist, right? And and that's yeah. a lot of discourse that happens on my channel and among my network of of buyers specifically is about ego. You know, because we mm-hmm. have ego, even if you are humble, you have ego. Um, that can be a own ha- ego. You have to, you know, like we can't deny the ego, yeah. but then the ego is problematic when we allow it to overstep its bounds, uh, mm. when we allow it to colonize the situation, right? So um, that's that's the key of it. But confidence and fierceness and warrior status, those all go hand in hand with humility. And, you mm. know, that's, that's what I'm trying to practice in, in my life.
1: Beautiful. Elise, the humble warrior. Thank you so much for joining us. This is really fun.
0: Thank you.